You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. First 5,000, then 10,000, now 20,000. Starting today, the ceiling limits for incoming visitors to Japan have been raised. It's the slow process of relaxing travel restrictions of inbound travelers, and that will eventually mean outbound travel will follow soon. This morning, we talked to Eric Takahata, the managing director of Hawaii Tourism Japan. He was part of the delegation from the islands who traveled to Tokyo last month to meet with government and industry officials. This thing was three-pronged in its approach. It was to re-engage the Japanese government, and then secondly, to you know reconnect with uh, some of the private sector for economic development for Hawaii. And then thirdly, it was um, you know for tourism, our tourism stakeholders in Japan. Since you return, we've had a bit of a surge uh, of cases here, and uh, and you know they've raised the levels in a couple of our uh, counties. Right. But how does that affect you know how Japan is looking at us? I would say it, it has very little effect. You know, the U.S. has been categorized in the safe uh, countries category for Japan. Uh, so meaning that you know residents of Japan are allowed to travel to the U.S., which Hawaii is part of, right? And and what they look at mainly is not so much the new case counts. They look at how that country or how that region, you know, has the pandemic under control. So, you know, I think for us, you know, despite the rise in cases, I think that, you know, our handling of COVID, you know, and to credit to the governor and our community as well, you know, it plays a big part in that. And, and so, yeah, we are in our safe category for Japan to travel to. And, you know, we do have a high rate of vaccination here uh, in the islands. And uh, fortunately, sure. you know, the cases that are ending up in the hospital, you know, are, are not as high as they were, you know, last fall. Uh, so that's a good thing. Yes, definitely. Any, anything that, you know, keeps the counts down, so on and so forth, is, are all good things. Today, I know Japan uh, lifted their ceiling uh, to 20,000 uh, visitors. And so, you know, explain to our listeners, you know, how that works. Sure. Um, so, you know, the, the main thing to understand here is, you know, we're talking about a, a very historically conservative country in Japan, right? They've always had a conservative conservative approach to, to anything. And um, surely with this pandemic, um, they have taken a very, you know, cautious approach to reopening their borders. And so it's a step-by-step um, step process. Now, I'd like to remind everyone that on March 1st, the cap that you're, you're mentioning for returning residents or anybody going into Japan was 5,000 a day. So it's actually quadrupled, right? Like you mentioned, we have 20,000, which is allowed as of today. What that's tied to, what it's mainly tied to, Catherine, is it's, it's tied to the capacity or the resources that Japan has to test people post-arrival. So what that means is when you land in Japan, be it if you're a returning resident or you're a visitor or a foreigner, you had to take a post-arrival test, which is funded by the Japanese government, and you had to wait for your results, for a negative result post-arrival, and then you were allowed to go onto customs and then release. So, you know, the cap that, you know, you're talking about is is directly tied to that capacity of testing. And so what we're seeing here right now is a calculated kind of lifting of border restrictions by Japan for them to keep the 20,000 cap in place. But now, you know, um, returning residents, Japanese residents, as well as um, foreigners are allowed to enter the country with no post-arrival testing starting today and just with a negative PCR test result uh, 72 hours prior to their departure you know, to Japan. So um, you don't even have to be vaccinated is the other thing. 
which is which is kind of uh, interesting or surprising, you know, that Japan allows. But it's now only that negative PCR test that you have to have 72 hours before departing for Japan, and you're allowed in. And logistically, though, I imagine it, it it's a bit of a challenge because there's far more people who may want to travel than they have slots for. Absolutely. So, you know, what we expect it to happen here in the next few months is that you'll see more and more restrictions being lifted off. Um, they are having a parliamentary election in July. And so, um, you know, this is a calculated kind of way to approach that in a positive way to stimulate, you know, the economic development for their country. But also keep in mind that, you know, the, the, that uh, the people of Japan are still somewhat uh, conservative in fully opening up the borders. And if we, we think that after these elections in July in Japan that you'll see, you know, hopefully this cap um, being completely eliminated and then full tourism, inbound tourism from from Hawaii and the U.S. able to happen after that. You know, I have seen a number of tour companies already booking, you know, group tours for even next year, I guess, in anticipation that, you know, those restrictions aren't going to be there. Right, that's correct. And so, um, yes, the tour companies I think you're mentioning are, are, for example, the ones here locally that do sell Japan tour package product. And and surely, you know, the the locals here, Japan is almost like the 10th island. And so a lot of people, I know there's a lot of pent-up demand for um, people wanting to go back for tourism reasons. You know, the other thing that um, I'll point out is that um, there are a lot of people here that have roots and uh, relatives and, you know, even Japanese expats. Uh, for example, who are here and and haven't been uh, able to go back for the last two and a half years. And so for those people, we want to make sure that they're able to go back to, you know, visit relatives, visit family, so on and so forth. So, yeah, the packages that you're mentioning for next year are anticipating that these restrictions will be completely lifted by then. So with these relaxed or eased border restrictions, you know, that, that allows people to travel from Japan here to Hawaii more and more. And so, you know, the cap has gone up, so which means more people can come out and return to Japan. And then as we see the summer going on, we see that, you know, cap being lifted, lifted and, and you know, hopefully completely eliminated. And that will allow the free travel of Japanese um, nationals to be able to come to Hawaii, you know, to visit us. Um, the other thing uh, uh, I'll say also is that um, the country of Japan has lowered the travel advisory for the U.S. down to all the way down to a one. And this is a major impediment for travel for Japanese nationals to be able to come to Hawaii because it was, Sasha, a month ago, it was still at a level two. And before that, prior to that, it was a level three. So um, it came all the way down to a one now. And so what that means is that the country of Japan recognizes that the U.S. You know, is, is safe to travel to now. And so our inbound uh, tour companies such as HIS and JTB are going to be able to you know, create uh, Hawaii tour products again and have Japanese freely register for those and be able to sell those freely as well. And I know it's a, probably a chicken and the egg thing, but, you know, with the airlines, right, trying to resume, you know, the routes. I, uh, I do have information on, on the amount of increases in air seats that we're going to have. But out of respect to the airlines who are going to make these announcements, you know, on their own timing, I, I can't share that right now. But I can tell you that the number of seats into Hawaii is going to rise very nicely into the summer and into the you know, Q4 of this year. You know, the Japanese carriers are aggressively expanding uh, the route service here. 
Um, we hear from Japan Airlines that the Kona route will start back up in August, which is very welcome news, you know, three times a week initially, and then hopefully to ramp up from there. So, you know, Kona is a very important port of entry for us to maintain and make sure that that stays open, you know, as a second port of entry, international port of entry into Hawaii. And um, ANA also, not to be outdone, is going to return the Airbus A380s all to Hawaii, and that's going to be a nice boost for us as well. Each of those planes carry about 520 uh, passengers, and their uh, plan into the summer, into early Q4, is to return all three of those Airbus 380s to Hawaii. And so, um, you know, that was also something that we were able to talk about on the delegation trip with the governor this past trip. Um, The ones that we really feel for and want to help a lot are our domestic carriers, such as Hawaiian Airlines and Delta. We know that Asia routes, and especially the Japan routes for them, are important for, you know, their business. And so we're doing everything that we can to help Hawaiian Airlines and Delta as well return. And then uh, is there anything on the horizon? Does uh, Japan uh, have another date at which they're going to raise the ceiling, you know, from 20 to 25 or uh, (laughs) drop it all together? Is there anything that that you're aware of at this point? Yeah, we don't have a solid date. Um, These caps are raised. I mean, I think uh, we all find out about them. Um, You know, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and surely the the Japanese government is very uh, strategic in when they release um, information. And so they do release kind of like a a surprise, you know, it's like a shock Ah. (laughs) um, kind of announcement. And so we don't know of any number, numbers or deadlines uh, as of now, but we are anticipating that those numbers will keep, you know, being lifted and lifted. And then, you know, hopefully at some point in the summer here that that cap is completely uh, eliminated. And so that's what we're anticipating, but I don't have a hard date or number for you right now. That was Eric Takahata, Managing Director of Hawaii Tourism Japan, talking with us about what to expect this summer. You know, all this week we've been looking at what we're doing as a state to get closer to our green goals by 2050. Today we hear from Hawaiian Airlines about what it's doing to reduce its carbon footprint. We talked to Chief Marketing Officer Avi Manis recently about what's being done to begin electrifying the fleet. There's no doubt that one of the negative impacts of flying, along with all the wonderful ones, including connecting us to the rest of the world and making possible much of our lives here, one of the negative effects is carbon dioxide emissions and the impact it's having on climate change. And while airplanes as a whole represent only about 2 to 3% of global emissions, there's, there's opportunity for us to do more to reduce them. And so the industry as a whole has set a goal to be net zero emissions by 2050, which feels a long way off. But there's a lot to do to get there, and we have to use every resource we have available to us to figure out how to do that, including some technologies that are not really available or at scale yet. One of those that you mentioned is electric aviation, and there are going to be some opportunities, particularly in the short-haul flying between the islands, to electrify aviation. But that represents really a very small part of our overall carbon emissions. Inner Island is only about 10% of our total carbon emissions, and the rest comes from the long-haul flying we do. So we have to figure out how to decarbonize that too. And there are a number of things we can do. There are 
operating practices, so ways we can fly more efficiently that burn less fuel, and we've been working on those for many years now and have made really good progress. There's investing in new aircraft, so the more modern our fleet, the more fuel efficient it is, and we've seen as we've brought in our new A321neo aircraft and modernized that part of our fleet, really significant reductions every year in the carbon intensity of our operation, so how much carbon dioxide we emit for every passenger we fly. And then the biggest opportunity probably is sustainable aviation fuel. These are fuels that we can put in the plane just like jet fuel. They're functionally indistinguishable from jet fuel, but are made from different feedstocks, whether that's used cooking oil or agricultural residues or solid waste from the dump. You can make jet fuel out of almost anything. So we're excited to continue to invest in some of those new technologies, which again are not on the market yet, but in the next couple of years could help us to dramatically reduce our carbon emissions. So we're going to hear a lot more about electric planes and biofuels going forward. Yeah, those are the biggest opportunities. And again, you know, we see a really unique role for us here in Hawaii to make investments in some of those companies to really try and drive the adoption of those technologies. And we made an, we announced a few weeks ago that we made an equity investment in a company called Regent, which is making electric sea gliders. So these are vehicles that fly, but they fly at a relatively low altitude and use the ground effect from the ocean to help generate lift and, and fly further. And so these, that's just an example of the kinds of innovations that we're working on, understanding that as an island community, climate change is an imminent threat for us, and it's something we have to be doing more to address. Okay, so that's a snapshot for the future, but what's the snapshot for the short term? Because we're just getting into the summer here and a very busy time. So what do you anticipate as far as uh, airlift for the summer months? Well, we do still see very strong demand from all of the visitor origin points that are open to travel. And so we continue to see very strong demand in the U.S. domestic market. We're seeing growing demand from places like Australia and New Zealand and Korea, where public policy measures have allowed tourists to start to think about traveling again. And so I think we're going to see a different mix of visitors than we saw last summer. And I think we're going to continue to see strong demand. For us, that means making sure that our operation is ready to go. And I think people have seen we've been recruiting very heavily over the last couple of months, looking ahead to the summer and knowing that we were going to need people in place to take care of our guests. So making sure that we can run a great operation is first and foremost for us this summer. And then continuing to work with stakeholders in the visitor industry here to think about how we can continue to make tourism here more sustainable and you know manage the number of visitors that we have coming to the state, manage the experience so that it has less impact on the environment and on our communities. I was really kind of startled, you know, to learn that you carried more visitors, I think, um, in recent times compared to pre-pandemic? Well, we would have had more domestic arrivals than we did pre-pandemic. But some of that is because Japan, which is a market that was about 20% of our business before COVID, has remained closed. And so we've taken some of that capacity and redeployed it from the U.S. mainland to Hawaii. And many of our competitor airlines who have also had lots of places they can't fly have chosen to fly capacity domestically within the U.S. to Hawaii. And so Hawaii has had a very big surge of domestic capacity compared to where we were before. But that's been accompanied with a downturn of international arrivals. And so when we talk about that mix returning back to historical levels, the expectation is that as other airlines have a chance to fly more 
to Europe and other places, and as Japan starts to reopen and we put more of our capacity there, that we're going to get back to a mix of visitors that looks more like it did historically. And then with the anticipated numbers coming this summer, what else is the airline doing to help educate our travelers? You know, we heard lots of calls about uh, the need to impress on them, you know, beach safety, that kind of thing. But, you know, what about that whole Malama campaign that HTA has got going? There are a lot of folks working on this, and I think it's clear that as tourism comes back, we need to build it back in a way that is better and better for our communities. So, you know, Hawaiian is playing its part. We all live here as well, and so we see those impacts. And I'm very proud of the work that we're doing to educate our guests about how to have great experiences here. We launched our Travel Pono in-flight video that we show on every arrival into the state that shares some interesting facts in the voice of our own employees. We want to make sure that we are still welcoming, that we're not condescending, that we assume positive intent from our visitors, but that we share with them some information that that we would want to know going somewhere else to help them have a good experience and be safe. And so we're going to continue to do that. I think it's also really important that we continue to make some of the investments as a community that we're making in managing the impact of tourism because we've seen over time, we get very focused on the number of visitors coming in any given period of time. But if those visitors were evenly distributed across the geography of the state at all times, I don't think it would have the same impact. The challenge is really that people show up at the same place and we don't have the infrastructure in place to manage that effectively. We don't have the tools in place to manage that effectively, and that has real impact on residents. So there's a lot of great work going on in the community that Hawaiian is also participating in to figure out how we give communities tools to manage the impacts of tourism on their own terms, and hopefully to get more benefit from it as well. And how are you looking at, uh, you know, this busy time Oh, with the with the numbers going up, um, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a COVID surge. I, you know, you folks are, are trying to, you know, hire more employees. But, uh, you know, every day, you know, you see stories about, oh, gosh, you know, this airline canceled all these flights because they just don't have enough staff. Um, how are you, how is Hawaiian looking at the summer months? We are looking at it very carefully, and we're trying to make sure that we schedule and sell only the flights that we are confident we can operate. And we have to take into account all kinds of new challenges, things like COVID surges that weren't part of our forecasting model years ago. So definitely gotten harder to forecast. And we've certainly had our periods of time where we weren't operating as well as we'd like to. But that's one of the reasons why we've been out recruiting in this community. And I think one of the great things about Hawaiian Airlines being based here is we've got so many great jobs, not just kind of the jobs you would normally have at the airport, those are perfect jobs too, but a really wide range of jobs across all of the different areas of the company. And so we've been very excited, you know, after a period of time when we were, you know, really managing our costs very carefully and staying smaller than we had been in the past, to be back and to be growing and to be bringing new people into Hawaiian Airlines Ohana, hopefully to build long careers with us. So in that sense, it's very exciting, and I think we're feeling very good about our ability to attract terrific talent to the airline. That was Avi Manis, Vice President for Marketing and Corporate Communications for Hawaiian Airlines, talking to us about the challenges to our pandemic recovery and their plans to begin electrifying the fleet where it can.
We have been hearing about the Singapore model for affordable housing, but what about the Austrian model? That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Stuart Yurton is on the line with us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, this is a proposal by Senator Stanley Chang that you came across. Tell us about it. Yes. Well, Senator Chang, as you mentioned, has been talking a lot about the Singapore model for housing, uh, where the government helps develop housing and then uh, offers it for sale um, as leasehold property uh, to the public. And the idea is that it really um, can be for everyone. Um, It's affordable, but not necessarily uh, for low-income people. It's really for anybody. So now he's looking at Vienna, which instead of having homes for sale, has a similar thing, but with homes for rent. And so, gosh, I mean, where did he uh, uh, unveil this idea? Well, he he, uh, spoke about it at a land use conference. The Hawaii State Bar Association every year has a conference on land use with uh, a lot of land use lawyers. Uh, it tends to be a fair, a somewhat right leaning crowd. This one had um, the keynote address was from the Pacific Legal Foundation. Again, it's about property rights and that sort of thing. So it's pretty interesting to hear uh, Senator Chang talk about this very progressive idea, almost populist progressive idea, uh, housing for everyone um, at this conference, but it was fairly well received. So this is government-subsidized housing? I mean, I know the headline says, do you want the government to be your landlord? You know, how does that work? Because people might think, "Mm, I don't know about that. Uh, Yeah, well, it's not exactly the government would be your direct landlord, although the government is uh, very much involved in in developing this. It's really more nonprofits uh, develop the housing, manage it, manage these apartment buildings, um, but with a lot of support and uh, subsidies from the government. So uh, how did this, uh, uh, you know, play out with this audience? Were they receptive? Well, yeah, the audience was very receptive. Again, Senator Chang was on a panel. It was uh, him and Stanford Carr, the developer. And uh, Mr. Carr was talking a lot about um, the impediments to uh, developing housing. We've heard about them, the very long uh, entitlement process, even for uh, basic uh, permits like building permits. So he was talking a lot about that and, and that that impediment. Again, Sen- Senator Chang uh, was focusing on this new idea. And I think for the land use lawyers, it, it, people were very intrigued and interesting from the questions that were asked at the end. It, it seemed like it was a very, um, people were taking it really seriously and seemed like a well-received idea. And so, you know, these novel ideas that Chang has introduced, I mean, the Singapore uh, style bills that he proposed, I mean, those died this year. Well, yes and no. The one, uh, the main one, what he calls the Aloha Homes uh, program, that one died. Some small things that he says set the stage for the Singapore model uh, to go forward uh, were passed. They're a bit more technical. Uh, So, uh, yes, it, it was a mixed bag for him this session. Uh, but again, you know, his real, his real message, I think, does resonate with people, even if he can't get a lot of traction uh, at, 
at the Capitol these days, but it's that he's saying housing for everyone. Housing should be, we should have housing like public schools and uh, where anyone can get it. It doesn't matter your income level um, or or really anything else. It should be available for people. And at a time when, you know, the median home price, single family home price on Oahu is now over a million dollars, I think that uh, message resonates with people. Right. So if you can't own a home, you know, you rent, but there aren't enough rentals out there. So we got to try something, right. I guess. Yeah. And 60 percent of the people in Vienna, more than 60 percent possibly, uh, live in these uh, rentals. So they're, they're, they seem to be very nice. They have amenities like some kindergartens, many rooftop pools. Um, there's a link to a video that Bloomberg put together on this with a, interviewing a number of people, including a former mayor of Vienna, um, talking about this. So it, it's, it, it seems like a reasonable model. Okay. Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens and, and see if we can get some traction and spend some of that money that uh, uh, that we're bringing into our tax coffers. <laughs> but, <laughs> but thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. Read his stories on uh, on this issue. Visit civilbeat.org. Waikiki Beach brings in $2 billion into Hawaii's economy every year. The small two-mile strip of coastline is one of the most profitable places in our entire state. And it's expected to be for the foreseeable future, assuming that there is still a beach for tourists to flock to. But as climate change exacerbates coastal erosion, that's not a given anymore. With summer in full spring, HPR's Savannah Harriman pote took a trip to Waikiki to see just what it's going to take to keep this economic engine running. I'm in Waikiki on what feels like the hottest day of my life. I've left the haven of our air-conditioned studios in order to meet Dolan Eversole, the Waikiki Beach Management Coordinator for the University of Hawaii Sea Grant Program. Hi. You wore a hat. Very smart. <laughs> yes. I have done this enough to know to wear a hat. Eversole has offered to walk with me along Waikiki's beaches to explain the measures we're taking against rising sea levels. But before we begin, Eversole wants to get one thing clear. There is no such thing as a natural beach in Waikiki. In fact, nearly everything we'll see today is man-made. We dredged the reef, we put sand where it wouldn't naturally exist. We tried to force, and we continue to force beaches in areas that they're out of equilibrium, they wouldn't naturally be as big as they are now. That turns the idea of quote-unquote preservation on its head. Normally, you might be thinking nature-based solutions. What, how can we maintain the shoreline here in a more natural way? My opinion is we're way too late for that. We're in a highly engineered urban environment. And while nature-based solutions are certainly on the table, things like reef conservation, reef restoration, face of species removal, that's all great. But we're not going to be able to maintain a beach if that's what we desire by doing nature-based solutions. We're going to have to intervene in a more robust way by building things and adding sand to the system, as we have done for 100 years now. Waikiki's coastline is a patchwork of small beaches. So Eversole says there's no one-size-fits-all solution for dealing with coastal erosion. 
each beach is a little different because of all the structures that are built that go out into the water starting from the natatorium to the queen surf groin to the kapahulu groin to the kuhio basins the royal hawaiian groin and so on it goes on and on each of those structures uh, defines a separate littoral system and each of those beaches act different to each other some of them are chronically eroding others are not and Eversoul shows me just how stark that contrast can be. The Kapuhulu groin is a long concrete pier and a popular sunset spot, but its real purpose is to trap sand on Queen's Beach. So in this case, the Queen's Beach is in fact super stable because of this groin. It is not eroding, and thus there are no efforts to do any work to it. But sometimes the key to saving one beach comes at the cost of losing another. Now, if we turn to our right towards the Waikiki side, you'll notice that there's hardly any beach. At high tide, the swim basin to the right of Kapahulu Groin will be almost entirely underwater. But if the groin stops the natural movement of sand, wouldn't the simplest solution be to just add more sand ourselves? Eversoul says that approach is kind of a mixed bag. They were able to bring sand into the beach, but it immediately slumps seaward into the basin. And, and the reason for that is in the 1950s through the 70s, they built this breakwater that breaks down the wave energy, which is great for this kind of swimming pool-like atmosphere. There's not enough wave energy to push the sand from this basin up onto the beach like would normally naturally occur. These basins actually are shallowing up over time because we keep adding sand to them, uh, but we're not dredging the sand and pulling it back up on the shoreline like the waves would naturally do. The idea of importing sand into Waikiki is not new. After all, all the beaches along this stretch are man-made. But as sea level rise accelerates erosion, we have to bring in sand more quickly than we're losing it if we want to keep our beaches. Right now, that means we need to come up with about 21,000 cubic yards of sand every couple of years. So a cubic yard is three feet by three feet by three feet. So roughly a truck bed, a small truck, is about one cubic yard. So we would need 21,000 Toyota Tacomas at one time. That's right. So if you were down here and you saw the beach nourishment project and the large dump trucks that were going up and down the beach, those are seven cubic yards each and they were up and down the beach all day for 10 days. And they just went back and forth. They were, we were actually timing them. They were on a three minute schedule. So they would go pick up their sand, get loaded up, drop the sand and be back in three minutes, which is really unbelievable considering the area that they're working in. So this system of sand replenishment could work, at least in the short term. But then there's the problem of where to get all that sand. Believe it or not, there is no commercially available sand source for beach nourishment, high quality, beach quality sand. You can't just go and buy sand. You have to find your own source. So it's a very challenging environment to work in. What the state has been doing in Waikiki is looking immediately offshore for sand fields that are thought to have eroded off the beach in the past 50 years. And the idea being, for Royal Hawaiian especially, to recycle that sand back to the beach. The Royal Hawaiian Beach, named for the famous pink hotel whose shoreline it occupies, is the creme de la creme of the Waikiki Strip. And it's of critical concern. 
that beach is thought to have maybe a 10-year lifespan if we were to not intervene and do anything portions of that beach would pinch out against the seawalls of the hotels and you wouldn't be able to walk along the beach anymore and thus the plan for the Royal Hawaiian Beach is to renourish or place sand back on the beach about every five to ten years so it's not a one-time fix. Continual efforts mean continual costs. Eversol says we've already invested over $10 million in the last two decades into Waititi to deal with the problem of coastal erosion. But when you compare that to the revenue that Waititi brings in, $2 billion a year, Eversol says stakeholders are ready to foot the bill. And that money doesn't just go towards sand replenishment, but towards building new structures that shape the beaches. For instance, the pandemic offered a quiet moment for engineers to sneak in and replace the 93-year-old barrier that protects the Royal Hawaiian Beach with a brand new groin. So this is the new groin. This is the newest structure in Waikiki, the Royal Hawaiian groin. This is the latest in groin technology? Yeah, I, for the most part, it's called a sloping rock rubble mound structure. So it's sloping rather than vertical. And it has, people would be very familiar with the design. It has rocks on both sides. One of the things that makes this particular groin a little bit unique is it has what's called a concrete crest cap or a um, concrete foundation that runs right down the center. And it looks a lot like a walkway, really. But um, it, what that's meant to do, this is a form of climate adaptation, ironically, is in the original design is um, about two and a half feet lower but they added the concrete crest cap to accommodate future sea levels so that it doesn't get overtopped. And the way it's designed, you can actually add another foot or two it in the future. If 20, 30 years from now we decide we want to add more elevation to it, they can simply stack on top vertically. So it's a hybrid design between a sloping rock structure and a vertical concrete or close to vertical concrete structure down the middle of the spine. With the trajectory for rising sea levels, do you think that water levels will raise to the extent of the groin and we will have to put something else on top of it? Almost undoubtedly, this structure will be outdated in about 30 years. And the engineers even designed it that way that it, it's meant to be as low and small as possible. So rather than build this big giant structure that will last 100 years, it was designed specifically to be scaled down to be as low and short as possible, but still function. And that conversation came up after the initial design about what about sea level rise? So this concrete crest cap was added as an accommodation for future sea level. And even with that, the engineers say, we're good for like 2030, maybe 2050, depending on which sea level rise scenario we end up with. Um, if we end up with higher sea levels, then it could be sooner. But it's not to say that this structure won't function, it just won't function as well. Eversol says that with enough sand, enough engineering, and enough money, we can keep business going as usual in Waititi, at least for a few decades. But in the long term, Waititi has the same problem that all of our coastal communities in Hawaii face. They're just too close to the water. Yeah, if we had the foresight to develop these plans 20, 30 years ago, we would probably be in a place where things would be set back further. I can't help but acknowledge that New Zealand and Australia have in fact done that. 
And they saw what was happening in the United States around the 1970s and 80s, and they said, nope, we're not going to do that. Uh, they don't allow development for anywhere like a quarter mile from the beach in, in many places. And they have this reserve area that's government owned and the, they keep the dune intact. We failed to do that. And it's not just Hawaii, it's the United States as a whole. Those are kind of the legacy effects that we're, we're stuck with in many places. I'm not sure what the remedy is there other than a major natural disaster that kind of checks it and we start over. But those are difficult things to incorporate into a plan, right? Like if the plan is to retreat or move away from the coast, how do you do that? Particularly in a place like Waikiki, it becomes very complicated. That was coastal geologist Dolan Eversole talking with HPR Savannah Harriman Pote, offering a forward look on coastal erosion in Waikiki. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering a variety of classes and creative experiences at its art school, reopening to the public this fall. Registration begins July 12th. More at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Justine Willis-Toms, author of Small Pleasures. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding grace in a chaotic world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from C.S. Woe & Sons, in Hawaii since 1909, providing home furnishings for the islands, from classic to contemporary to casual. Learn more online at cswoandsons.com. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, you've likely seen a cattle egret or maybe a whole flock of them perched upon the backs of cows or other livestock. But do you know their song? Well, we've got that for you today, thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. Cattle egrets are those bright white birds with long yellow legs and bills. They're often seen along roadsides and fields, and especially love to sit on the backs of horses and cows. They were introduced to Hawaii around 1961 to control flies, but are now widely found around all the main Hawaiian islands. Cattle egrets forage for just about any animal they can swallow, but are considered harmful as they can be flight hazards at airports and are nest predators for some native Hawaiian water birds. You can often hear the calls of cattle egrets as they fly overhead in flocks to their roosting areas at the end of each day. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo.
Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering guided nature adventures on Hawaii Island, designed to help inspire connection and stewardship of the land. More information at hawaii-forest.com. For 70 years, Queen Elizabeth has served on the throne, and starting tomorrow, Great Britain is marking the Platinum Jubilee with four days of festivities. Here in Hawaii, Iulani Palace will join other places around the world celebrating the event with a special ceremony that will be open to the public. It begins at 10 a.m. on the grounds that will feature bagpipes and a special beacon lighting. Paula Akana, executive director of the Friends of Iolani Palace, credits longtime docent Hardy Spore with suggesting that it would be fitting that Hawaii take part in honoring the long-reigning monarch because of the long relationship with our Ali. We'll be celebrating the Queen and her 70 years on the throne. And so we'll have the Royal Hawaiian Band. We're going to have town criers. We have these special beacons, which are torches that are being used all around the world. They're really interesting looking. They're set up with a gas, like a propane tank, and then they're actually lit. And they'll be lit in honor of her. And we'll have a procession with pipe and drums. We'll have the royal standards of all of Hawaii's ali'i, as well as the royalty in the UK. And then we'll have the Hawaii Royal Societies. And we also have representatives from the Commonwealth nations who are located here in Hawaii. They're representatives like Aotearoa, Australia, Samoa, Tonga. It's just going to be a day for everyone to kind of just say congratulations on 70 years, which is so phenomenal. There's also going to be guest books for people to sign a message to her, and those books will be forwarded to her and sent up to England. So it's just kind of a nice way to just celebrate her and celebrate this long-standing relationship that Hawaii has had with the Ali'i there. And so share with our listeners um, what that relationship is and why it's important. There's been a long-time relationship. First of all, with our royalty visiting them in 1824, Kamehameha II and his wife Kamamalu, they went to England. They were going to meet with King George III. Unfortunately, they died of measles while they were there. But the king arranged to have their bodies brought back to Hawaii. In 1850, Alexander Lihuliho and his brother Lot, they were future kings. They actually met with the royal family while they were visiting. In 1862, Queen Victoria was the godmother to Prince Albert. And you can actually go to Queen Emma's Summer Palace and see the christening cup that she presented to him for his christening. And Queen Victoria and Queen Emma were very close. You know, they both lost a child. They both lost their husbands, and they became really close friends. In 1865, Emma actually went and met with Victoria. In 1881, when Kalakau was on his trip around the world, he met with the Queen. And then in 1887, Queen Kapi'olani and Princess Lili'uokalani attended Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. And if you go into the Blue Room of the Palace, you'll see that article and the etching that shows where they sat prominently with royal families for that. And so there's always been this relationship. And the Queen Mother came twice to Hawaii. 
I think one time she was just at the airport, but she also came again and was unable to come into the palace at that time. That was under construction, or reconstruction, we might say. And actually, Queen Elizabeth II visited in 1975. Same thing, they were doing the reconstruction, and so she was unable to go into the palace. But, you know, they've come here. There's always been a relationship. We had treaties with the Hawaiian Kingdom and with Great Britain. And so it's just kind of a nice way to bring back some of those thoughts and envision this relationship between these two countries and then to celebrate this woman who's, I mean, they've got longevity there. (laughs) Yes, they do. Just she really is a remarkable world leader. You know, when you think of how she just really grew up in that in that position and has reigned for so long. It is. It's, and it's amazing. It's amazing to see what she has gone through. And in 70 years, to see the change in tide in humanity and in technology and everything. And she just rolls with the punches. And in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of, if you look back to our queens, Kapi'olani, Kulia Ikanu'u, her motto, strive for the highest, and then the Lili'u's, Onipa'a, to be steadfast, we can kind of see a lot of that in Her Majesty as well. And so for the uh, general public that may want to go down there and uh, take part, what's the status of the regular tours that normally happen there at the palace? Will those be on hold or or, uh, will those visitors be just treated to something special? So the regular tours are just going on as normal. And this one is just whoever wants to come in, the grounds are open. And so whoever wants to come in and, and have a seat will have over 300 seats set up there and just come and enjoy. And if you want to see if there's a possibility to tour the palace afterwards, that's great. Most of the times we need to have tickets ahead of time. Everything sells out pretty fast. But if not, it's just a wonderful day to spend, you know, out on the lawn there and to take part in this and maybe send a message to the queen. And is there anything special uh, that the Royal Hawaiian Band is going to play? They're going to play God Save the Queen and just a few numbers. They're kind of opening and closing the program itself. And then you will have bagpipes? We'll have bagpipes. And it's going to be really nice to see the royal standards that are brought in. The royal standards are the personal flags of the OBE, and they'll be carried in by, I believe, by students from Kamehameha schools. And so we actually had to do a little bit of research to make sure we had the right one through our archives, the state archives, and Bishop Museum. And so these are our actual recreations of the flags that would have been flying or been carried when our Ali'i were present. And so that's going to be kind of a fun one to see, too. Kudos to my staff because they have been working so hard, not only in putting this together, but just making sure that our tours are running. And we've had other events, private events that have been happening. And so they've been working pretty much around the clock to get this ready and to keep the palace running. And we're open Tuesday through Saturday to all of our tours. And we're just really happy that people are coming to learn the history of Hawaii. That was Paula Akana, Executive Director of the Friends of Iolani Palace. She was sharing what's in store for Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, celebrating 70 years on the throne. We will have links to tomorrow's event on the palace grounds here in Honolulu. We'll have that on our conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
Well, our time is up now, but tomorrow we learn about plans to expand protected areas across the Pacific. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you want to listen back to something you heard? Find all of our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.